the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Tonight, uh, we're pleased to have back with us Dr. Ann Carroll, a practicing physician who works a lot in an emergency room and stays up on what's going on with COVID-19. Dr. Carroll, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Nick. It's always great to hear from someone who's like in the trenches as to what's going on out there. Um, What are your current observations now that we're at the early part of October now? How how are we doing and what are you seeing actually in the emergency room and in the hospitals? So what we're seeing is, of course, we're seeing more cases being diagnosed, more people being positive. But the good news is the number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions are low, have decreased. Um, it goes back to the patient population that's greatest, at greatest risk, which is the nursing homes or those individuals who are elderly with comorbid conditions. So it's no surprise that uh, we're seeing a lot of people being tested that are positive. Now, there are people being tested that are positive who have absolutely no symptoms at all. So what we're doing now is testing them again in 24 to 36 hours. If the second test is negative, we're saying it's a negative test. We weren't doing that before. We were just testing the ones who were positive. They were quarantined for 14 days. Well, now they're saying 10 days. So we're doing things a little bit different. We're developing, they're developing, a uh, new way of testing. We're hopefully that the patients, uh, we can take it home and do it in our own bathroom. And it's a saliva. And you just test it and you have a result in 15 minutes at home which would be great because now when you go to work, everyone's getting screened for their temperature when they come in and they have to wear a mask. But with the temperature, many people, uh, up to 15 to 20% don't have a fever and they're infectious. So it would be great to be able to have someone test themselves at home, say, oh, it's negative, wear your mask, you can get screened for the temperature, that's fine. And we have a a second level of comfort that we're not spreading it. you know, I wanted to talk, we've talked about this before, about how, how we can protect ourselves with best. Yes. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to briefly revisit the three types of airborne uh, viruses. Uh, the fomite, which is the largest one, is really if you touch it like MRSA or one of those. And so that's why keeping your hands clean, washing your hands frequently is important. Because if you touch something that's... <clears throat> on an inanimate object and touch your face, you increase your risk of getting a disease, any disease. The droplet is the main way that COVID is spread. And COVID is a very lazy virus. It likes to sit on the droplet. And they've done some studies and the normal talking, it looks like the virus really will only go about on the droplet about three feet away from you. We say six feet social distancing because it buys you extra space, which is smart. The third way is the aerosolized, it's airborne. And uh, there are some viruses that are less than five micrometers 
They're so small that they are, they're suspended in the air. And an example of this, if you want to see, uh, are not for COVID, from what I can see was around, the highest was around 2.53. In Ohio now, it's less than one, it's around 0.9. So that's all good. If someone had measles and they were in a room and they left the room, an examining room, let's say, and you walked in an hour later, you could get measles. The are not on measles is 15. It's probably oh my. the most, yeah, the most infectious virus that we have. Now, now d define for us who aren't familiar with the word are not because it's it's a reproduction. What does that mean? How in, so it means how infectious it is. So less than one means that if someone's infected and the are not less than one, the risk of transmitting that virus is much much less. If the R naught is 15, it's very infectious. So one person has it, and that person can give it to 15, can give it to 15, and on and on, exponentially increases. So we're at a good place now in Ohio with the R naught being less than one. So that's very good. And a lot of that has to do with uh, some social, dis uh, of course, social distancing, wearing a mask, some lockdown. But um, there's some controversy about the lockdown, whether they were you know, the states had various lockdown rules. I mean, right. for instance, in, in Hawaii, my favorite place to visit. They if you have to be locked down, that's a good place. Yeah, at 4.30, no one could be out walking or driving a car. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what is that about 4.30? Is COVID much more infectious after 4.30 in Hawaii? I mean, there were some things that were done that make absolutely no sense at all. So I think they went a little crazy with the lockdowns in some of the states. Um, uh, but for, you know, I guess how was paid with good intentions. Um, but we're doing much, much better. Um, one of the things Does, that... Uh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. I just have a question before you move along. Uh, the saliva test, is there a name for it? Or is it called the saliva test? And how long does it take I'm, to get a result? Uh, 15 minutes. And there are different companies so that are doing it, so it's not just one. So I'm waiting to find out which one the FDA approves, and then I can tell you. <laughs> but oh, that's what okay. they're working on now, and um, that'll be much better. It's better than the, the doing a, a rapid test like that, or the when we did the nasal pharyngeal. That's really good in terms of uh, transmissibility. You know, who has it? Who's actively infected? A lot of people are looking at the antibodies. The antibodies are really good in the public health because they tell you who's had it and who's protected. We believe protected from the virus. So that's really good in a community. And if you suddenly started seeing cases developing in a community, you could test for antibodies, but you would go back to testing for active disease again, not just looking for with antibodies. The, with the saliva test, does the saliva test test for antibodies then or active infection? No, just it's active infection. That's what it's testing. Oh, good. For. Well, that's the important one. Yeah, yeah, right. So, that's and, uh, and, and you know, it's important. You know, with this, people get are still so anxious about it. But you know, I I tell people it's more important to do risk reduction than try prevent it. You know, so do all the things you have to do to protect yourself and your family. You know, mask and washing your hands and social distancing and all of that. And if you're around someone who's screaming and yelling. You probably want to get away from that individual because some, you know, people acting like that, if they're infected, they aerosolize the air and increases everybody's risk 
of getting the infection. Your mask, while it's not 100%, does decrease the viral load, which is another thing to look at. Some people have a low or, or positive, test positive, but they have a low viral load. So your risk of picking it up for them is much lower versus someone who has a very high viral load. And right, right. No, no, we have, that, we, have a, we have a lot of masks uh, at our house. And uh, uh -huh. we've been told early, and I don't know if this still is accurate, that if you have virus on your mask after 72 hours, that uh, virus will have just been destroyed on its own. Right. Is, is that right. accurate? It's yeah, it has to have a place to, to multiply. You know, if you're not feeding it, it's not going to survive. Um, and that's why, you know, we tell people, if you're wearing a surgical mask around in the community or the cloth mask, don't wear them day after day. If you come home, if you can throw the surgical mask out, great. The cloth, you wipe, you wash it. Put it in the washer, clean it, put it on for the next day when you go out again. Um, it's just, just good personal hygiene practice. You know, in the hospital, we wear the N95s because our risk is much higher because of the patient population that we're taking care of. But, well, well, and uh, how successful has the PPE, personal protection equipment, been there at the hospital? Uh, you have not been seeing a spread amongst the staff members? No, um, I haven't. I have a physician who called me earlier today uh, is concerned because one of her um, employees tested positive. So she's going to be coming in to see me later today. But short of that, I haven't heard of much over the last three to four weeks, which is good, which is very good. If uh, someone comes in, we still are looking at the same symptoms when people become uh, symptomed, uh, they have active symptoms. Uh, so we're still looking at fever and Basically, flu-type <laughs> symptoms. Right. Fever and cough and uh, this extreme fatigue, um, you know, you know, just the sort of this virus sort of thing. It's hard to know. Is it influenza A, B? Is it COVID? We don't know. Um, but we're, they're producing, they're making a test that will test now swab for the season. Influenza A, B, and COVID, all three will get swabbed at once, which is great because they'll give us some feedback on three infectious diseases and, and we'll know in which direction to go. Um, because influenza A is still quite infectious and, um, you know, 60% of people get it, uh, have the vaccine, still get it. So in half the country doesn't yeah, get the yeah. vaccine. <laughs> well, we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Ann Carroll, a physician uh, who has been staying on top of all the COVID issues since March when this became a big issue. We're going to be back with Dr. Carroll talking more about COVID. We want to find out how safe is it to travel on the airlines and how do we go about doing that in the safest manner possible. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking with Dr. Ann Carroll, a medical doctor who is uh, focusing her attentions, on, among other things, on COVID-19. So we're getting an update, as always, from her. Thank you, Dr. Carroll, for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. 
You know, uh, we were talking earlier about the idea of uh, airline travel. Uh, we've put our lives on hold now since March, essentially, and some of us have to fly somewhere or, or spend days driving somewhere. Uh, for the airlines, how safe is it to fly now, and, and how can we protect ourselves and minimize our risk for COVID in that airline environment? Well, first of all, don't fly if you're sick. I mean, think of be a good steward of your community. Secondly, always wear your mask. The airlines are now requiring everyone, crew included, except when they get into the into the cockpit, they can take they take it off. All the flight attendants, everybody is wearing a mask. Um, many of the airlines, not all, but many of them are leaving the middle seat open, so they're practicing a quasi social distancing when you go. Um, the airlines kind of, uh, they did some interesting studies, and it's a mathematical model, so everybody goes crazy because the original mathematical models for COVID were really off. But I think this one makes sense, and I can back it up with some uh, real-time uh, exposures. Uh, there's a mathematical model for a flight that's two hours long. It's with an Airbus or 737, and everyone was wearing a mask. It was a full flight. And the chances of getting, it's a three-seat, three-seater, the chances of getting infected is one in 4,300. That's pretty good. If you take away the middle seat, it makes it in one to 7,700, which is very good. So people say, uh. well, what reduce, what's reducing the risk in a jet? Well, first of all, it's their air filtration system. It's incredible. The air is replaced every two to three minutes, and the air filters are 99.9% gathering up particles. The air um, is coming is being taken out from the bottom, rather coming up into your face. It's going through your feet and out. That's how the circulation works in a jet. So the feeling is that if you have an even longer haul, not only do you wear a mask, but they're encouraging to wear a face shield. Between that and hand washing, middle seat empty, and you know just doing good hygiene, you really have decreased your risk substantially in travel. Um, there was a study. Uh, well, what happened? <clears throat> there was a flight in March, March 31st, and it flew from the United States to Taiwan. And on that flight, it was a full flight, and this was before we all had the COVID thing going. And there were 12, 12 passengers that were on that flight and they were all symptomatic, positive for COVID. So when they got to Taiwan, they checked everyone. Everyone was screened and not one crew member and not one other passenger developed COVID, which is kind of interesting. I wouldn't want to take that kind of chance, but they weren't masked. And I think it, it speaks to the air filtration system in this jet. Um, the, they had another flight from Singapore to China, and uh, uh, patients, uh, pa passengers were sick, but all of them had been to Wuhan, and only one had not been. So they had a previous known exposure that came out of Wuhan, got on this flight. But there was, uh, you know, they all did well. Nobody died from it. Um, another hmm. one out of London, London Hanoi. This is, so the point I'm trying to make is when you're flying, I think leave that middle seat empty. Wear your mask. Wear a face shield. We're seeing studies coming out that the face shield adds that extra layer of protection. I mean, it's very cumbersome and nobody likes to do it. 
But better you should do that than take the risk of getting COVID. But even if there's somebody on the flight that's COVID positive, let's say, you, you're not seeing a lot of pay, uh, passengers becoming positive as a result of it. But with a with a face mask, uh, of course, you're you're preventing any viruses or other contaminants from getting into your nose or mouth. Uh, a face shield, you're protecting the entry from your eyes. Uh, wearing mm -hmm. any type of glasses or safety lenses or something is, is that helpful, or should it be like yes, a full? I picture like these right. welder shields, you know. Right. Well, they make these nice plastic shield face shields now, but they're not heavy. They're not very cumbersome. And you put them on, and so you know if somebody's coughing or sneezing, um, and you know they might do it sideways, let's say a lateral exposure. It could, there's some theory that it could get into your mucous membranes of your eye, and that could be a source of uh, COVID activity or uh, transmission. So put on the face shield and and put on your mask and continue to wash your hands. And um, I think that. You would be pretty safe. You've really reduced your risk of picking up if somebody was positive for COVID. I mean, there was a uh, there was a flight out of China that went flew into Toronto, and there was one passenger on it. He, I mean, he was Chinese and he was wearing a mask, and he wasn't sick. He didn't get sick until he went to Toronto, and then he they, he was tested positive for COVID. So the airline tested 25 people that were sitting all around him for that long haul flight, and he was the only one wearing a mask. No one else tested positive. So whatever you can do to help- Oh, that's encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> that's encouraging because, you know, we can't uh, stop flying forever. Uh, there has to be right. some end, which uh, puts us into a situation now with vaccines. What do you think about vaccines? Are, are we going to have something uh, by the end I, of the year I, or first half of next? Well, of course, I, I take a, I wait for the vaccines to be developed on a slower pace. I know everyone wants a vaccine, but we're not sure from what I've read that it's going to be effective. And you don't know if it's effective until you start doing mass inoculations to see what happens in the community. Um, mm -hmm. I think my approach would be if they get this quick test that people can do at home. That's a great way. You start testing yourself until we get a vaccine that's really uh, protective. And then, you know, that's great. You can get the vaccine and get rid of the mask, and life is good. If you start testing yourself at home, and we get these saliva tests that so we can have, we have a 12-pack at home or something, and we're, we're yeah. checking ourselves periodically. If we come up positive without any symptoms, uh, one, I would assume we would quarantine ourselves at that point. But well, who do we notify? Do we notify our doctor, or do we take another test, well, or what? Well, most of the, well, you have to notify someone. Usually it's the public health department wants to know, and they will have everything outlined if we get to that point. But what we're doing now is if you tested yourself at home and you were positive, you would stay at home. You'd wait 36 to 48 hours in quarantine, retest yourself. If it's still positive, it's a positive. If it's negative, it's negative. So um, we don't, we, we call the first positive, the first test, we say it's pending. We're not sure if it's true positive. We're testing a second time to see. The second time it's positive, we're saying it's a true positive. If the second time it's negative, then the test is negative. So that's how we're going to have to start doing things. 
um, you know, it's not the one test and you got it because we didn't know what to do with all these asymptomatic people. And they had an exposure and they came in and they were testing positive, but they had no symptoms. Well, now we're testing them and they're positive and we retest them and they're negative. So even though they've had a with positive the, exposure. With, with the ahead. numbers of hospitalizations and ICU and uh, ventilators going down and deaths going down, is, is this because the demographics of who's getting it are younger and healthier or are the people who are older still at the same risk they've always been for a serious case of this? The people who are still getting it and ending up in the ICU are the elderly. Um, if you looked at the, the study from the, uh, the Princess Cruise uh, that was out of Japan, and they had some passengers that became positive for COVID, um, I think seven people died. And the seven people that died were all elderly people with comorbid conditions. And a lot of the passengers never seroconverted. They never became positive. We're seeing the same thing, exactly the same thing. It's the nursing home patients. It's, it's uh, people in confined uh, environments like prisoners in old, old prisons that don't have good ventilation, a lot of screaming, yelling, whatever. We're seeing a lot of COVID that way. So in the general population, it's still the elderly we have to protect. How, how do we define elderly today in the clinical <laughs> sense? Depends on, who you, depends on who you're talking to. But I know. Say, <laughs> 65 or above. But the, the patients that I have seen have with COVID have been in their mid-70s, some in their 80s, um, and all did, all did well. It's not that every single person who's elderly and gets this virus is going to have a serious uh, or a terminal case of it. That's not the case. But there are Still, about 40% of all COVID fatalities were a direct result of nursing home cases. That's pretty high. So, you know, that, why well, that is. that's where the money's at. So we still have to watch our nursing home patients. And if they ever come up and, and, and make this a simple saliva test with 15 minutes, I think anyone working in these nursing homes needs to be tested all the time to make sure they're not bringing it in and protecting these individuals. You know, they're well, that brings us, have no that, that gets us, sure, that gets us to uh, another term that we've learned about called contact tracing that uh, we'll, we'll have to come back and talk about these. Also, yeah. the efficacy of lockdowns and how does lockdown, that concept, whether or not we're facing another one, and whether it's really all that necessary. But we, we're running out of time. I'd like to thank Dr. Ann Carroll for joining us tonight. Dr. Carroll, thank you, and we'll have you back on again. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking to State Representative Tom Patton, a longtime friend and a good public servant. Tom, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Nick. Uh, the state of Ohio, the state legislature, uh, COVID, we've been dealing with COVID here since March. 
Uh, what what's happening with uh, COVID from your perspective down there at the state house? Well, um, you know, the governor has, I think, done an admirable job. Uh, not all of his decisions have been as well received by the populace, but uh, I think he has every his best interest at heart. Um, I think he's when he he's a little bit more conservative, I think, than some of us would like to be. In some instances, I don't know, for example, the restaurant borrowers, um, I'm trying to advocate that they uh, give them another hour. I mean, that sounds, you know, 10 o'clock, um, let them go to 11. I mean, these folks that, you know, I hear from them and it's, uh, you know, the folks, it's just, it's just a very, very difficult thing. But I know that uh, one of the things that uh, I, I look back upon with some, some, uh, uh, 2020 viewpoint is that the leadership of the Cleveland Clinic had approached me about two and a half years ago, and they asked me to advocate for telemedicine in Ohio, that we'd be able to perform that. And uh, uh, it took me until June of 2019 to get that accomplished, but we did. And uh, I talked to, a, to two different people within the past week, one a doc and the other one a patient who's got multiple docs. And it's tough to get around, but she said, uh, and it's got a lot of secondary conditions. You know, if, she, if we can only imagine what we would be in 2020 as bad a year as it's been, if we didn't have telemedicine at our disposal. I mean, it's uh, virtually the doc I talked to said he's seen everybody telemedicine, you know, and, uh, you know, he's, he's ordering tests and, and they're going over the test results all via, you know, the computer. And I, I'm just delighted. And again, I, it, it wasn't that I woke up one day. I want to make sure the leadership of the clinic is acknowledged because they fought for this for all of the, uh, the medical folks in Ohio. And it, it was just a, mm-hmm. a timely thing. Uh, um, you know, it's, it, it's putting a stretch on our unemployment dollars because uh, we're already into the wheat. And we had, in 2017, finally paid off the money we had to borrow uh, during the 2008-2009 recession. And uh, of which we paid back, you know, several hundred million dollars, you know, but the 175, actually several, a couple billion dollars and 175 million of that was interest alone. So we had started to just begin to build up that bank account and, you know, the COVID unemployment seems wiped it out. But uh, and so now we're back in the borrowing mode, and which means that going forward, we'll have to pay this, you know, this money back uh, unless for some reason the feds decide to print even more money. Um, which is a little troubling for as I think of my grandchildren, but uh, it's just, it's just right. been the most in, incredible year. And, uh, you know, but well, well, it has. You know, this will be the year uh, to, to remember 2020, the COVID year. But you mentioned telemedicine starting back in 2019. That was really ahead of the foreseeable future, which at that time did not include a pandemic that would make telemedicine so important to continue to deliver health care to people. If they would have taken us, yeah, if we would have had to try to do it on the fly, when the state house was shut down, you know, the governor shut the state house down the whole month of April. When they hit March, you know, they 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 closed everything down, obviously government included. And so, when would we have had the opportunity to go in and try to quickly put a telemedicine bill in and through? Uh, hopefully, we could have got it done quick, but there wasn't that initial concern uh, because the fact it was already in the toolbox. So uh, I'm, pr- I'm proud of that, and I'm proud that the clinic asked me to carry the ball for them. And, and, and for the 
hundreds of thousands of people that have been able to utilize um, telemedicine in Ohio. I'm just uh, grateful they had that opportunity. Well, it's one of those things that turned out to be so fortuitous that it was done at the right time with the right subject so that we had the right result, which uh, sometimes works out because otherwise this COVID thing has been just an economic and uh, and healthcare mess. But it, we seem to be stabilized to some degree. How does the COVID situation look from your perspective now, from all that you hear of down in Columbus and up here in Cleveland? Well, I, I think um, the the medical people that I've talked to seem to think that with the colder weather coming in, uh, there's going to be more people staying inside versus outside. Uh, there's going to be another spike, and uh, I hope it's not significant. I hope it's, you know, clearly manageable. And I think that at the onset in talking to the governor, when this first broke out, you know, he pointed to, you know, the uh, government of Italy that had uh, such a shortage of uh, ventilators that they had people uh, in in hospital quarters on cart that actually put people in cafeterias on tables and he had one ventilator for 14 people that needed them and he said the governor's words he goes Tom we need to buy more time I have to buy some more time so we can build up well we build up that facility over by Case Western thank God uh, I give thanks that we didn't have to use that but we were prepared and 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 I think that we had enough ventilators I think I heard the president about four weeks ago say that nobody in the United States that needed a ventilator didn't have one. And uh, and I know we're shipping some overseas now and you know, so you know, he put a full, you know, head on, let's let's get this thing going and he got General Motors involved with some other companies and that's you know, you're you're making we need you this is executive order you need you to make. So um, but it seems like, you know, though even the folks that are going to the hospital uh, not as many, and I think that they've come up with some other protocols because the death rate, it's still high among, you know, the elderly with pre-existing conditions, and especially in communal settings like nursing homes and in prison. 71% of the deaths we've had so far are, are, are nursing home uh, folks because, again, they're, in the, they're not in the nursing home because it's not a retirement, though. They're in there because they have some conditions, sadly, and uh, the nursing home folks do a wonderful job just uh, uh, it's a difficult population to to safely control with this virus but I think that uh, you know we need to get you know we need to deal it's kind of like World War two when we fought two wars at the same time you know and I, 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 I point that out to a lot of my younger constituents they say you know we fought you know two wars in two different parts of the world you know and this is what we have to do now we have to continue to fight the COVID battle you know, continue to be safe, continue to do all the stuff that would slow down or, or not allow for a massive spike, while at the same time trying to get businesses and education, you know, all that stuff back on track. You know, we, we, we just can't, you know, you can't have any more shutdowns of the government. It's, uh, uh, that, that would be just impossible to think of because, we lost a lot of companies tragically because of the COVID. And uh, we did pass the bill that would allow the, uh, uh, immunity to businesses uh, in the event one of their employees got it. A lot of companies didn't open up, Nick. Uh, as an attorney, you're, you know, you're aware that uh, you know none of the insurance companies offer pandemic insurance. So a smaller company uh, that one of the guys in the warehouse gets it from 
one of the other guys who takes it home and gives it to his grandmother who dies. And though, you know, they, the small company would say that wrongful death suit would be massive and that would knock the pins out from underneath them. So um, we originally passed it with an emergency order. should have been done by June 19th, but the Senate didn't like We had to get 66 votes for an emergency order, and we only have 61 Republicans, so we had to make a deal with the Democrats. They wanted to add police and fire if they get it, workers' comp case, and grocery store workers if they got it, especially in those early weeks of the pandemic, were forced to go to work. And that was able, able to get us the emergency clause. The Senate took it out. And so when it came back, the House Democrats said, well, then, if we didn't get what we want, we're not voting for it. So the bill passed, but without the emergency clause, which means 90 days from the governor passed it about three, 30 days ago. So in two more months, you know, the immunity will be official, you know. And uh, I just scratched my head. I think that, you know, my good friends in the Senate could have said a little bit more um, open to the idea that, the emergency clause was critical, and uh, that's just how sometimes things work out. I sure. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how the after effects of this COVID pandemic uh, play out from a legal standpoint, an economic standpoint, and also from a medical standpoint. Right now, we're all hoping just to get through it and still uh, have everything as much as possible stay intact. We're, we're talking to State Representative Tom Patton, and uh, we're talking about his view from Columbus from the State House. So we're going to be back. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate on WHK. We're going to take a short break, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Back Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for Night. Thank you for joining us. Uh, tonight we're talking to State Representative Tom Patton, updating us on what's going on in Columbus from his perspective. So again, Tom, State Representative Patton, thank you for joining us. Thanks again, Nick. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, as we're all just sort of uh, watching COVID-19 on the one hand medically and then the economy on the other, uh, there's still other things going on in the state. Uh, one thing that's been talked about is that the uh, House Bill 6 and the uh, repeal of, of that. Can you give us a quick uh, update on, first off, what, what was House Bill 6 and how is that tied in with, with large dollars and how has well, the how, repeal of that yeah. affected us? I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you asked this question in particular because uh, House Bill 6 was a uh, – at face value, people think it's a nuclear bailout, uh, and it was, you know. And but uh, it also had 300 million dollars in there for solar energy farms, the largest investment Ohio ever made. Um, we took away about seven dollars worth of uh, weekly or monthly fees on electric bills for wind and solar. Um, we've given wind and solar about 14 years. Um, and we were going to replace the $7 with $0.87 cents starting January uh, on 90% of the people's electric bills in Ohio. And uh, so the net result was it was actually a rate cut. Um, the, the bill, you know, went through the House, went through the Senate, and uh, uh, we made sure also that the nuclear companies that were going to get this financial assistance would have to be audited. 
and up, all the way up into the executive compensation room because we were only going to be there as a backstop, not as an ATM, so that if they were making mm-hmm. money and didn't need it, then they wouldn't get the money. And I thought that was a big improvement the Senate made in the bill. And, uh, you know, the, the end result was that the former Speaker of the House, you know, you know, at this point now we knows uh, his first energy, uh, they conspired first to make him Speaker. That's the very beginning of the of the uh, of the of the bad activity. Um, Mr. Household had 26 votes uh, when he ran for Speaker January of 2019. Um, Ryan Smith, who I supported, had 35 votes. And tradition has always called that whoever has the most votes is the Speaker. The other guy, you know, usually gets Speaker pro tem as a going away prize, and then. You know, um, you get on your business. But that particular time, a 120-year tradition of letting the majority pick their own people, uh, Mr. Householder and his people went across the aisle, uh, bypassed the former minority leader, Fred Strain, a wonderful man out of uh, Dayton, um, and uh, cut a deal with 26 Democrats. That's how he got the majority of the 99-member state house. But how he was able to even get that many is that he put in 22 races. He fielded a candidate uh, on the Republican side against the House-endorsed candidate, and he won with the, obviously, the money that came in from First Energy, a significant amount of that money he had to spend, um, and they won 21 of the 22 seats. So he had those 21 seats plus himself. He only got four of the uh, four other House members who had been there before. The other gentleman, the other gentleman, Ryan Smith, got 35. So... Um, even how he got to be speaker was through like you know, you know, chicanery and 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 wheeling and dealing. I, I'm told that the promise was made to the 26 Democrats that they wouldn't have any um, any help as their opponents would not have any help from the Republican side. And you know, right now there's so much speculation going on. Um, but suffice to say, uh, once he was in power. Uh, and, of course, since I didn't vote for him, I was in the proverbial doghouse. Uh, I was taken off finance first time in my 18 years in Columbus. I wasn't in, in finance. And I had been in leadership for the previous eight. He, you know, took me off of leadership. And I didn't even get a chairmanship. But, you know, you know going in, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Householder's first, uh, my first two years in 2003 and four, his, his last two years. And the FBI was investigating the heck out of him then. So you got to go with your gut. And I said I kind of went from the to the outhouse, excuse me, well, maybe the, the doghouse to the penthouse because uh, the first thing that the new speaker, former Supreme Court Justice Bob Cup, who's a colleague and a and a good man, we we chose him to replace him, Mr. Householder, speaker. And the first thing he did, his first official act, was to put me back on finance. So I was uh, for Northeast Ohio to have representation on finance. I think is critical, and I I appreciate that move by him, but. Uh, Long and short is that House Bill 6, um, not a bad bill, you know, but, you know, how can you have a bill stay when there's $61 million worth of bribery and, and, and scandal and indictments hanging all over it? But as my people, I think oh, yeah. the Senate passed the bill. The Senate didn't get 61 cents when the governor signed the bill. He didn't get, so the bill by itself, you know, what you always want to have. Energy Secretary Rick Perry sent a letter four years ago that said you must have energy diversification. Right now we have less than 2% in wind and solar. We have 24% nuclear, and the rest is cheap natural gas. 
And the question I pose is if we got rid of or somehow or other the nuclears go away and you've got less than 2% wind and solar and the rest is cheap natural gas, Nick, how long does that cheap natural gas stay, stay cheap? You know, suddenly your bill goes up 14% one year, goes up 9% the next year because there's no other game in town. So, you know, I, I felt my whole purpose for my support of the bill then, and my, but the day after the indictments, I want to make sure I point out, I hustled down to Columbus to help sponsor bill to make a full total repeal because it just has to be. You know, we've already had two it, on it, the It does. It does. Well, well, a question. You're, this is uh, election time, and uh, we have the COVID. We have the economy. We have all kinds of issues that make it a very difficult time. Sort of the last thing we need is to have a corruption scandal. Well, what are you hearing when you're, you're talking to constituents out there about House Bill 6 and, and the, this whole corruption scandal again? How did this even come about in this time? I, I thought after the the cleaning of house we did in Cuyahoga County with the commissioners years ago, that that sort of sent out the message, you know, thou shalt not commit corruption, you know. But uh, but we still have it in, in large numbers. What what happened there, and what are people saying out on the street? You know, the people on the street um, that I talk to, you know, every it's like they say in Washington, there's like 90% of people have an unfavorable um, opinion of their of Congress, but they all like their congressman. You know, they think he's, yeah. he, he or she is a good one. But you know, um, math doesn't I, I work. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but that uh, uh, you know, the the folks want to see House Bill Six repealed. Um, I'm pressing the speaker. I wanted it done really soon, but unfortunately, that 300 million dollars and a couple other things that were in there that were, you know, you know, very important to the to the ratepayers. Um, it, you know, you, you, like I said, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, we've already awarded right to the people for those for those solar farms. They bought the the various components and begun construction of these solar farms, and all of a sudden they say, "Oops, that's a, that, we're not going to we don't have the money to give you anymore because we just repealed the bill." It's kind of like surgery; you have to get in there and you have to excise the the cancerous tumor, but you you want to save the patient, you know, the good organs. And uh, so it's it's our intent, at least it's my intent, to repeal House Bill 6, come back with a replacement bill, you know, that will, you know, um, address all the, you know, take away all the negatives and uh, ensure that the voters of Ohio know that their energy program going forward uh, is, is, is solid and is fair. And, uh, you know, the governor, the day after the indictments, he wanted to keep House Bill 6. But I think he thought about it the following day. He said, well, you know, we just need to repeal that one and replace it with a similar one. But, you know, so, you know, but the people right now, believe it or not, I mean, the House Bill 6, I mean, to me, it's a significant issue. And I talk about it all the time, about the necessity to get rid of it. But they moved on. I mean, I mean, for the most part, it's not the big topic. The big topic is still people upset about wearing masks, people upset about kids in school how safe they are should they be wearing masks and uh, why are the bars can't stay open longer? You know, it's, uh, you know, everybody's got, you know, they, they, their focus is the most, and of course the presidential election is, is, uh, has, has, has brought about such extreme uh, responses from both sides. I think the rioting 
in the in the various cities has really alarmed a lot of folks that uh, uh, their safety and their and their family safety is is become a uh, much more of a concern than it's ever been before, at least in my lifetime. You know, I'm told that you know the gun stores take you know and the ammunition and things like that they're flying off the shelves. They're just people, and that scares me because. You know, you, you 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 want people to have the ability to disagree and people even to protest. But when you throw the first rock or you throw the first Molotov cocktail and burn up a police car, you know, or you take over a police station, that's no longer a peaceful demonstration, a peaceful protest. You know, that's uh, you know that's just that's just crime. That's 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 breaking the law, and we can't have that in this country. No, no, we we really really can't. Uh, but uh, in any event, we're out of time for it tonight. But I'd like to thank uh, State Representative Tom Patton for joining us and giving us uh, his his views from what he's seeing down in Columbus and up here in the Cleveland area. So again, Tom Patton, thank you so much. I'm you're welcome, Nick. I'm a big listener. I always enjoy your program. You take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining us tonight. And that's it for tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and next week, have a great week. Stay healthy and safe. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea with nothing to do.